G'day, this is Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and may I say to you, Happy New Year, 2nd of January, 2023. My goodness, my goodness me. Here we are. What a, what a, what a year it's been already. <laughs> I don't know, some shit might have happened in the news, and that now is ironic that I said that. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of this. It's a show called Better Than Yesterday. It does what it says in the box. It's here to help make your day-to-day better than yesterday. And you're listening to our summer greatest hits episodes, which are when I asked the team that makes the show with me what their favorite episodes of the year were. These are the ones they came back with, and they're all crackers. They're the greatest hits of our, of our last 12 months of making this show, of bringing conversations that otherwise don't really get to come out into the public, into the public and so many people like this. We passed 10 million downloads in 2022. We're very, very proud of that. And here's to the next 10 million more. Today, we're listening to Peter Singer, an incredible conversation with one of the absolute founders of the ideas of eating ethically in a secular way. But before we get to that conversation, the the team that chose these shows needs to get paid. So I'm going to have to play some ads. And then we're back with Peter Singer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think you have to do what is going to have some sort of impact, even if a very small one, and feel that you're playing a part in that. So when it comes to global poverty, people often say, well, you know, whatever I could do would be a drop in the ocean. We shouldn't think of it just like that. We should think about what we can do that is positive and making a difference. And, you know, the average middle class or above Australian can certainly save the lives of people in low-income countries by helping the most effective charities to protect them against malaria or to get them started in uh, some sort of enterprise where they can lift themselves out of poverty. I think it's a mistake to think if I can't solve the problem alone, can't solve the entire problem, it's not worth doing anything. That's a big problem that people think about that way and it's a psychological barrier. What we need to be doing is to do what we can to move things in the right direction and of course to encourage others to do that, set an example that they will follow and then more people will do that and then together we can make that difference. That is ethical and political philosopher Peter Singer. And this is Better Than Yesterday. 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 
Quickly, let me tell you about my guest today. Peter Singer is an ethical and political philosopher best known for his work in bioethics and his role as pretty much one of the intellectual founders of the modern animal rights movement. His book, Animal Liberation, is a cornerstone of ethical treatment of animals and has had far-reaching effects in farming practices and, to be honest, in kitchens all across the planet. His work is absolutely timeless. The questions he poses for us to answer remain pertinent. His writing on factory farming and the risks that it poses to humans through pandemics is brilliant, particularly around pig farms and the 2009 swine flu outbreak. It is an issue that is only magnifying. We all know the animal-to-human transmission of viruses very well. We all know about that through two years of COVID. And now with uh, the Japanese encephalitis outbreak linked to pig farms here in Australia, the questions about the ethics of this kind of farming are incredibly relevant. They're difficult questions, but they're ones we have to ask. I saw in the news the other day, there's a, you know, there's a baby in hospital with Japanese encephalitis. I mean, I don't know, it's not fair, very fair. They call it Japanese, but it's really, that's not good. And when it comes to climate action, after the last month here in Australia, the clear effect of a changed climate, it's not climate change, it is the climate has changed. The clear effect of a changed climate due to our way of getting energy and using energy, that effect is lying in giant muddy piles of useless belongings lining the streets of Brisbane, Gympie and Lismore right now. The ethics of inaction around climate have never been more clear. And in an election year, we actually saw our federal government demonstrate profound inaction in the face of Australians who are in desperate, desperate need. Our leaders must be held to account. I don't care who you vote for, but if they are not looking after all of us, they are not doing their job. Our leaders must act in the interest of our entire nation, not just the electorates that like them. We have made it their job to protect us. As an Australian group of people, we came together in the late 1800s and went, you know what, let's just get a few people to look after all of us and we will put them in charge and then they will work for us. That is how it works, all right? We have made it their job to protect us and it is our job to make sure we make a good decision with our vote. So I really hope that this chat with Peter Singer helps you think about some of your own questions for your MP, questions that I, I certainly would encourage you to ask your MP this week, next week, definitely before May, and questions that you will answer with your vote. Peter Singer is heading off on the road for a series of in-conversation events, uh, some with the incomparable Josh Zepps and some with the fantastically clever Libby Gore, don't miss your chance to see Peter Singer speak live. You won't regret it. You'll never forget it. 27th of March, he's at the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. 29th, uh, he's doing a gig on my birthday in Brisbane. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate that, putting on a show for my birthday. On the 3rd of April, he's in Melbourne. So you could essentially go to 
hour early show at Chapel Off Chapel and then go to the Peter Singer gig. So, hey, what a night. You can get your tickets right now, thinkinc.org, T-H-I-N-K-I-N-C.org, www.thinkinc.org. They're a great group of people. I did some gigs with them with Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple of years back. They put on some pretty excellent events and they always put on a good night. So enjoy this conversation with Peter Singer. How you doing, Peter? You good today? Yes, thank you. I'm doing fine. Oh, great, 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 man. Where where in the world do we find you today, Peter? Uh, I'm in Melbourne, not too far away. Oh, lovely. You're in Sydney, is that right? We are, which is somewhat uh, subaquatic at the moment. We'll, we'll get to that because it's, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> I think it's the third one in 100 storm we've had in a decade. And I'm like, guys, you might need to actually start calling this what it is, okay? Because <laughs> it's yes, getting a right, bit silly. <laughs> let's let's right. be honest. I'm incredibly thrilled and, and honoured to speak to you today, uh, Peter. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's fair that people understand where I come from when I speak to you because... 25 years ago, 96, 98, something like that, somewhere around there, 96, 97, is when I learned how much land and how much water and indeed how much food is grown to then go into the factory farming industry that then feeds people. And to me, it seemed like, well, that's just a waste of resources, isn't it? Well, I don't want to be a part of that. And you know, slowly, and it happens with many people this way, chicken was first um, and then uh, red meat and then finally fish and then a few years later in 2002, eggs. And it's it's been that way ever since. I haven't eaten animal products in over 20 years. The feeling in my heart of I don't have to kill something to live, that came later, um, which I am still grateful for. However, it for me, it, it started as a resources thing. And I came to your work um, after I had chosen the, this pathway. And um, so to speak to you is, is quite a thrill, man. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that's, that's terrific. That's great. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, converging reasons on why we should be not eating animal products um, and obviously, one of them is the waste of resources and land. Uh, increasingly, we realize also that uh, greenhouse gases are produced by a lot of the, the meat products that people are eating, and that's a bad thing. But also, for me, in, in fact, it was though my concern was about animals, it wasn't specifically about killing them. It was more about the suffering that we inflict on them. That was uh, really got what got me going into this. When I learned that, this is back in the early 1970s, when I learned that animals were being taken off the fields and crowded indoors in sheds where they never got out to walk freely or see the sunlight uh, and that essentially they became machines for converting low-priced uh, grain or soy into high-priced animal products. Uh, and that seemed to me to be quite wrong, that, that it was the, 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 the profitability of the enterprise and not the well-being of the animals had nothing to do with it. Uh, so that's what first moved me away from it. But uh, yeah, I know a lot of people have moved in because of the wastage of resources in uh, animal industries in particular. And don't get me wrong, I, look, I, I'm the, we have not a, we have a, a, a somewhat similar background. I'm the child of two, two euros. My father um, was, is, is Czech. Um, my mother was Lithuanian, and so it was meat, 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 meat or meat. Uh, 
bugger the Australian climate. Who cares? It's Sunday, kids. There's a pig's head in the oven. <laughs> it's Zoltz time, you know. So that's all that I knew. And it was, for many people, it's a very difficult thing because food is love and food relates to our parents and food relates to our sense of home and belonging and and a communication of love that is non-verbal, that can be given by a family member to you. So it, I understand why it's difficult for people to approach this sort of stuff. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I also had parents from, from Central Europe, um, so there's some of that background. But also, I mean, just growing up in Australia in the, in the 50s, um, meat was the basic thing, you know, barbecues, uh, lamb chops, were, uh, meat was there at certainly twice a day. Um, some people had three times a day, but I was, I was mostly twice a day. And uh, I assumed that that was just what everybody did uh, for quite a long time. And it really wasn't until I went to Oxford as a graduate student, so I was already in my early 20s, uh, that I started thinking about this as an important moral issue. Uh, I think people didn't for, for at, at that stage. It was really rare to meet a vegetarian, let alone a vegan. You know, you wouldn't have known what the word vegan meant um, at that time. I can only imagine, I mean, now, the even now, it's been 20 years, but people still sometimes, not all the time, but people st- sometimes take it quite personally when I tell them, oh, no, I don't eat meat. They sometimes can take it as an attack on their choices. I can't imagine what it was like to communicate that you know, 40 something years ago to people who had never known anything different well there was certainly that sense that you were criticizing the way they were living and you know like, to some extent that's true but much more than there was the sense that mm-hmm. you were a crank um in fact the the leading the best the best vegetarian restaurant i don't know that there was a vegan restaurant um, in london then but the best vegetarian restaurant was actually called cranks um, and then there was a second vegetarian restaurant called The Nut House. Um, and both of them sort of conveyed this idea that people thought vegetarians were cranks or nuts. Uh, so you had to overcome that sort of level of, of ridicule first, um, that people had thought you'd somehow, you know, gone off the deep end and become some kind of crank to uh, have stopped eating meat. When you were a young person growing up in Australia, was there any clue... Did, you, did later on when you spoke to, you know, the older people around you, was there any clue that you would end up in ethics? Were you a particularly, you know, a, 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 the kind of kid that was particularly, had a particular sense of justice? I don't really think so, to be honest. Not when I was young. Um, I think that started really in the 60s when I was an undergraduate at Melbourne University. And uh, so I was, you know, already 18 anyway, not younger than that. And uh, there were a couple of things that happened then. One was that although I'd originally planned to do a law degree, when I went to Melbourne University, I spoke to a counsellor who noticed that I'd done well in subjects like history and literature and suggested that I combine the law degree with an arts degree, um, thought that that might be more interesting. And then when I thought about, yes, okay, that's a nice idea. What will I do as part of the arts degree? Uh, I want to do history because I was always interested in that. But... Um, my sister's boyfriend at the time, later husband, had uh, she's an older sister, had done some philosophy and I talked to him about it and that sounded interesting. So I went into philosophy and in philosophy I was particularly interested in ethics. That struck me as the sort of, if you like, the, the part where the, where the rubber hits the road, where 
where philosophy starts to make a difference to how you live. So I had that interest. And then at the same time, the Vietnam War was going on and I became part of the movement against the Vietnam War. And so there was a big ethical issue that was affecting my life. And I was part of that more radical student left, I suppose. Um, but I still wasn't thinking about the treatment of animals at all, really. As I say, that only came when I went to Oxford as a graduate student. Uh, that didn't seem a serious issue. That seemed like a kind of sentimental issue for animal lovers, and I didn't really identify as an animal lover. But to protest against the Vietnam War in that time in Australia, you were an Australian-born male. Uh, you were of age. Conscription was a thing that you were, you know, that was coming your way, wasn't it? Oh yes, sure. There was a there was a lottery for that um, at that time. Uh, sort of missed earlier on. There'd been a shorter period of conscription for everybody. Um, I think when they turned eighteen, uh, then the government changed it to somewhat more selective when you turned twenty, and and there was a lottery, and I drew a lucky marble. I got a card saying that I was not required at that time, so I was was fortunate for that. But um, certainly some of my friends uh, did get conscripted, and of course some conscripts were being sent to Vietnam. So yeah, that was a, a prospect to worry about, at least until I, I got the lucky marble. I actually, I actually know, as a mate of mine, one of his good friends went to um, university as a mature age student and they actually went to university together and he, had, he went to our school growing up. He was uh, 30 years older than us and he was conscripted. He was 18. He was the doctor of the school and he was conscripted and I can't imagine what it would be like. So 18 years old, no, you have absolutely no choice. You are going to go to this training camp. You are going to wear this uniform. You are, we are going to give you this gun. You are going to get on this plane or boat, as it were. You are going to then get in a truck and then you are going to go out to this field and you are going to go shoot somebody. Like, and it, it, it pardon the French, <laughs> yeah. it, it fucked his life. It completely fucked his life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's certainly and understandable. That's, that's really tough. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I had planned, you know, if I did get conscripted, I'd planned to become a conscientious objector. Now, the problem with that was that at that stage, I think the courts were recognizing people who were conscientious objectors because of some religious view and were complete pacifists. But I wasn't religious and I may not have qualified. I could still have simply refused to take part and then I might have spent some time in, you know, locked up for being, uh, you know, disobeying orders or something like that. But, um, yeah, I, I wasn't going to go and fight in Vietnam. I think I'd been pretty decided about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's particularly now as we are watching war unfold in this, well, you know, full-on like live stream Twitter stream of, of, of cataclysm upon, you know, Ukraine. Uh, the idea that you, know, you have no choice, and this may seem immoral and it may seem completely against your values, but you have no choice and we're going to take you over there. And if you say no, we're going to put you in prison so you can't be amongst any of your friends or family or your career. Like, yeah, I understand why you would have protested is what I'm trying to say, Peter. I get it. Yeah. You know? I yeah, I do. It. And I, I sympathize, I have to say, with, with some of the Russian soldiers because I've I was just reading that uh, interviews that some of them had had after being captured by the Ukrainians, uh, in which they'd said, you know, they thought that they were going to the border for military exercises, for drills, and they weren't even told that they were going to be invading Ukraine until they were over the border as part of the drills, and then they were told, you know, this is not a drill. Um, 
we're now going to fight the Ukrainians and, you know, you're there, you're part of it. Uh, so, you know, it's a terrible thing, but I, I don't the think of them as necessarily evil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, old, the old bait and switch. Oy. That's hard, man. That's 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 very hard. As someone as someone who gets right stuck into uh, philosophy, you're I guess you're ultimately searching for what makes people act and and the way they act. And as we you know, to use Ukraine as an example, sometimes people can find ways to justify their behaviour and they can reverse engineer it to to anything to to fit a narrative. Is what you're doing in the space of ethics and philosophy, is it trying to find like a, a core North Star that we can all kind of look at and, and work from? Is that really it? I think it is, yes. Um, and in fact, your title, Better Than Yesterday, comes close to it, right? I think the, 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 the North Star, if you want to call it that, is trying to make the world a better place, doing what you can to reduce suffering in the world in particular, um, and increase happiness as well to the extent that that's possible, but it's usually easier to focus on reducing suffering. That's easier to know how to do that than to, to make people happy. So, uh, you know, I think the common thread in all the work I do, whether it's about animals, whether it's about global poverty and trying to assist people in extreme poverty, whether it's about smaller issues like uh, physician-assisted dying, you know, those are things where I say, well, there's unnecessary suffering going on here and we could change that. We could make a difference. So to me, that's the most important thing for us to aim at doing if we want to live an ethical life in addition you know, to obeying sort of general moral rules like trying to be honest and not harming people and so on. Um, but Trying to trying to make the world better, trying to reduce suffering, not just not inflicting it ourselves, but helping others to reduce suffering. Uh, I think those are those are the important ethical guides that we ought to really be thinking about. Watching the young people in your life that you are intimately related to come online and grow up, do you feel that we kind of all come out like that? Are we are we hardwired to? try to not inflict suffering and try to reduce suffering in each other? I don't think we're all the same. Uh, I do think that there are, there are some common tendencies in all or most human beings, and one of them is certainly to think about our own interests and the interests of those who we're really close to, particularly family, loved ones, close friends, to think of those ahead of the interests of strangers. I think that's something that's given to us by the evolution of our ancestors. Our ancestors were more likely to survive if they thought of themselves and their kin ahead of um, strangers. So I think that's there. But I think a sense of compassion and a certain degree of empathy is present for most people, fortunately, but not everybody. Um, and I think there's, there's literature about people who are psychopaths and you know, unfortunately, there are some people who don't really feel any empathy with others, sometimes don't even think about their own future very much. So, so there are problems about that. But most people, fortunately, I think you can talk about ethics. You can talk about putting yourself in the position of others who are affected by your action. You know, imagine what it's like to be a person in extreme poverty who watches their child die because they can't get even the most basic medicines or health care. Uh, even you know, imagine what it's like to be 
a, a pig in a factory farm, unable to move around freely and transported to slaughter and so on. So most people are prepared to think about that. And quite a few people are prepared to say, yes, that matters, and I don't want to support that. But there's a lot of other pressures as well, of course, conformist pressures, not wanting to stand out from others, doing what you're in the habit of doing, what your family does. So it's not easy for everybody to do that. But uh, I think, there, you know, fortunately, there are elements of what we might call um, an ethical approach to living in the overwhelming majority of people. We are... And I know, I'm sure people would like to think that they live ethically and they do try to do the best they can. Yet if if you're anywhere from lower middle class and up, if you're listening to this, you own a, at least some sort of internet connected device. So you're lower middle class uh, and up. Therefore, you know, I would just broadly say that you and I have all been born into a system that has essentially made a lot of ethical choices for us. Therefore, you know, meat production or burning fossil fuels and and our life is amazing because of it. We haven't had to think about it. We have clean clean water comes out of my tap, Peter, from a dam hundreds of kilometres away and it, I can drink it and not die of cholera. Like it's a miracle. But there's ethical choices that have been made, you know, what land got flooded, what wildlife habitat got destroyed. You know, there's all kinds of things that I had. And and so that choice has kind of been made for me and I, I directly benefit from it. When we're trying to make an ethical choice from within the system that we live in, let's talk about modern Australia, for example. It might be how you use energy or how you get from place to place or what you eat. How can people start trying to nudge their thinking, not even their choices, just nudge their thinking closer towards making an ethical choice outside of this habitual system that we're all in? I think it's a matter of uh, expanding the circle of those beings who we're concerned about and thinking about our effect on them. So if you consider energy, for example, we are very fortunate in, in the ways that you suggested, but we need to think in this case about people who are going to be living in the future. Maybe there are children or grandchildren already, but um, also even further in the future than that. And we need to think about people in other countries who are much more dependent on weather patterns and much less able to protect themselves from floods, droughts, storms, and so on, um, who are going to be much worse off than we are as climate change continues and as rainfall patterns become less stable, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of people dependent on, on rainfall who are going to have to move because the rainfall will stop or will become less regular. Uh, so um, that's the kind of thing that we need to think about and therefore to try to reduce our own greenhouse gas emissions, but also to try to support those political parties, those groups who are trying to reduce climate change, who are serious about reducing climate change. So that's that's one example of ethical choices that we have to make in the way we're living. But Peter, I'm busy. I've got to take the kids, pick up the kids from jujitsu. After I take the other one to netball, you know, swing past music class to drop the other one off while I get the, then I've got to put a load on the laundry on. It's raining, so I've got to put the thing in the dryer and then bung dinner in the oven. You know, that's, who's got time to, to think about these things and how do they, how can I think about something in 50 years or in 80 years? How can I think about something in Fiji or sub-Saharan Africa? How can we break out of that sort of, th this, this whirlwind that we can find ourselves in modern life and start thinking about that stuff? I think we can. I think a lot depends on 
who we're mixing with and what people take for granted. So, you know, there's if, if your friends think that it's normal to do some of these things, to use public transport more, to do the things that you mentioned, or if you can't do that, to find, you know, th- think about whether you can at least have a, a hybrid car of some sort or um, perhaps electric vehicles, which are becoming more available and less expensive. Uh, you know, think about those, those changes as they become more normal. That can help. And of course, getting back to what we were talking about, what we eat, the greater availability of plant-based foods today does make it a lot easier to think about that. And, and that's relevant both to the treatment of animals, to climate change, and to not wasting resources in general, uh, as well as health aspects, which I think are influential for many people and wisely so. So uh, I think as as things you know shift, if you're part of that shifting in in what people, how people are living, what they're buying, you uh, and for that matter, you know what they what they're doing to help others. Uh, I think that can become part of that busy lifestyle. Um, perhaps not so easily, but it can be. Even in even in the time that I've been eating this way, to walk down the aisle at Coles where we get our groceries from and see Coles branded tempeh, you know, this is a massive, massive corporation that owns squillions of hectares of land and they, somewhere in a focus group, have gone, we're losing money to this tempeh company. Quick, let's make some tempeh. All right. <laughs> Like it blows my mind. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic, of course. Yeah, and, and it's happening in lots of things. I mean, one of the things that started quite a few years ago was the was the plant based um, milk products. You know, the the soy milk or almond milk or oat milk it is now, uh, and that's now got a significant share of the market. And nobody thinks that's strange anymore. Um, when I first got into this, as I say, in the seventies, um, I was living in England, and you couldn't get any plant-based milks in the in the supermarkets there was a health food shop in in oxford there was one there was one shop that was selling um soy milk you had to go there and get it and it wasn't cheap either so um yeah a lot of a lot of things have changed in in that respect and it's definitely good to see the the big companies are investing in this too you mentioned personal choices how you get around or what you eat where do you see the line as far as, I mean, let's take the current example uh, in Brisbane, Wyvernhoe Dam was built after the 1974 floods as a flood mitigation strategy. Um, and, you know, it's worked variously well or not well, depending on how it's operated, I guess. Where's the line between, uh, look, uh, the weather's changing, you need to flood proof your house, it's your personal choice, versus the weather's changing, uh, we're going to build a bigger dam. Where do you see when it comes to climate, when it comes to agriculture, where do you see that tipping point that a government should go, actually, this is our responsibility, it's no longer personal responsibility? I think there's there's always a personal responsibility to do what you can. I, I don't think we should just rely on governments and say, it's up to them to make sure that everything works out okay. So, um, yes, you know, if it's feasible to flood-proof your house, then you should be doing it. But um, it may not be feasible for everyone. Um, it may be in some cases, you know, looking at what's happened in Lismore, um, it may be that really the people need to move. I mean, that's going to be tough, but uh, it seems like the level of flooding there is getting worse um, and it's going to repeat itself, no doubt, not in not in 100 years, but in the next decade or so probably. Um, so, you know, what can be done about that? I'm 
I, I, I can't answer that question. But certainly people as individuals should be doing what they can and not relying on governments. But um, they should be working for uh, the changes in, in policy that can make a difference there. And clearly this is climate change related you know we we don't get as you said at the beginning we don't get three three times in a decade or so uh, <laughs> once in a hundred year floods um we have to change the way we're thinking about this so uh, our government should be pulling its weight in doing that it should be among the leading governments in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions getting to net zero uh, and we're not and and we should be thinking about that and supporting uh, the politics uh, politics that will do that. We're often faced, and certainly in the climate, um, I guess the den- I, won't, I won't say it, what it isn't, Peter, like in the denial of these facts in the last two, three decades, the moral reprehensible concept of taking cold jobs away has always been painted as way worse. And a, how dare you do such a bad thing versus, you know, trying to keep people's homes safe. Uh, that that I've always found interesting, using that argument of like it's your fault that this hard-working blue-collar person lost their job because you don't want to burn coal anymore. And I've always found that like a, a kind of shitty argument when it comes to what's clearly a better environmental solution, but let's be honest, a better economic solution. If What can you do with free energy or near-free energy? Tons. <laughs> you can do a lot. <laughs> And it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I find yeah. that a bit of a dirty. I find it a dirty trick. Well, I mean, you know, again, you've got to feel empathy for people who have been working in the coal industry and losing their jobs. Oh, yeah. But that's that's something where where the government needs to make sure that there are opportunities for them that they can be retrained, or if they're at an age where they feel they can't be retrained, to provide support for them. We don't we don't want to hurt people, but. Yeah, we, we learn that some things that we did in the past were not good. It's the same in the tobacco industry, right? I mean, if, you know, tobacco, used, at least in Australia, used to be far more people smoking and uh, no doubt tobacco companies had lots of people working there and the demand uh, in many countries, not all of them, unfortunately, uh, has greatly diminished. But, you know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want people to be getting lung cancer so that you can keep people in jobs. And, and the, the problems with the coal industry are just as serious. They may be on a larger scale. Um, they may be somewhat less visible. Um, but the consequences are there and they're, they're catastrophic if we continue to burn large quantities of coal. There seems to be quite an intersection of the work that you've been doing, the, the headline work that you've been doing over the years uh, around uh, animal ethics and the treatment of animals, uh, around environmentalism and, and around extreme poverty, and that all these three things are kind of coming together around around climate, a, a supergroup, if you will. <laughs> like a similar solution can work across, across the board. When people are elected into power in, in this country, they're often quite heavily influenced by... Um, Industries outside of government, which hold a, a lot of a lot of sway, what message would you have uh, around you know this kind of stuff for whoever does get the top job in uh, come May? So I think the message is that if you have the top job, you have a heavy responsibility. You have a responsibility for the future of our own country and contributing, as we were saying, to stopping the catastrophic floods or, or the droughts. You know, and Australia is like that. We're going to have more extremes. We've had more extreme floods just now. Um, that's part of La, La Nina. We're going to have um, El Nino 
coming around in a few years and we'll probably have more extreme droughts. So it's really important to protect the future of Australia and to contribute to reducing climate change as far as possible. We're not, we're not going to stop it altogether. Uh, and it's really important to think about people in other countries, as we were saying, who are less able to protect ourselves. Uh, and I would also like, although this is not very popular electorally at the moment, but I do think we ought to be thinking more about making Australia's uh, foreign aid more effective than it has been and, and going back to the levels that it used to be because Australia's foreign aid has dropped quite shamefully now and we're giving less and less than uh, we used to give. Uh, but that's something that we ought to go back to and we ought to make sure that it's as effective as possible. That's that's the other thing that I'm involved with through the effective altruism movement, not just to encouraging people to be altruistic, but encouraging them to use their head as well as their heart so that they select the causes that are really going to make the biggest difference with the resources that they have available. And I think uh, Australia's government needs to do that as well. When it does come to charitable giving, as Australians, to be asked to give to someone in our suburb it can kind of make a bit of sense. We may see someone who's sleeping rough, uh, you know, outside the nearby shopping centre or, you know, we may see someone sleeping in their car and go, well, that's near my house. I understand this. Um, this person had, you know, exposed to the same society I came up, I'm guessing. You know, I, you know, I understand why this person needs help or this particular homeless shelter needs help or this particular other charity near me needs help. But what about, oh, let's just say, you know, someone living 50 centimetres above the waterline in high tide mark in Bangladesh? You know, why would someone from Kenmore, which is near where I grew up in Brisbane, why should they care about a person 8,000 kilometres away? And, and why is it in their interest to do so? Well, I think we need to be able to empathise with people who are far away and speak different languages or have different cultures. And one of the differences, I think, between the two situations you mentioned, trying to help the homeless person in our own suburb and helping people in uh, low-income countries, is that you can often do a lot more with the same resources, even though they're further away. Because they're in low-income countries, um, there are ways of helping them that are that are much simpler. So sometimes, for example, giving people cash grants. There's there's an organisation called Give Directly, which gives people cash grants of um, around a thousand dollars. Now, a thousand dollars for somebody in Australia who's homeless is probably not going to make a life changing difference. It's 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 not enough. Um, but a thousand dollars for somebody living in a low income country who's in extreme poverty, as the World Bank. Uh, measures that, let's say they're earning less than $2 a day, two US dollars that is, but still say two fifty or something Australian, $3. Um, so, you're, you know, $1,000 is their annual income or more than their annual income. And that can make a huge difference. That can give them a chance to do things that they could never have done before, to start a small business, to replace their leaky thatched roof with an iron roof that keeps their food supplies and other things dry. Um, so, I think we ought to be thinking about people elsewhere in the world because they are very much poorer than us. They don't have, you know, you were mentioning the safe drinking water that comes out of the tap. They, they, they may not have that. They may not have any basic health care. They may not have um, mosquito nets to sleep under so that they and their children don't get malaria. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that we can do for them very cheaply. Um, 
some of them may be blind and when they could have their cataracts removed and uh, that's also something that every Australian can get. So uh, there are opportunities there for doing more good for fewer resources that I think is why we should be thinking about people who are far away from us, who are strangers, uh, in preference even to people who are closer. And I'm not saying we shouldn't help people who are close, but where the problems are difficult ones, where they're quite costly ones to fix, I don't think we should necessarily just be saying, well, these people live in my suburb and therefore I'm going to help them in preference to using the same funds to make much bigger life-changing differences, perhaps in several people in low-income countries. I'm not a person that particularly believes in a, a, any kind of uh, deity. I, I, I personally believe that when I die, my molecules just go into the ground and become a part of the universe that becomes other food. And the fact that I then rejoin the rest of matter and <laughs> then live on in a, in a squillion different objects is, and, and beings and creatures is incredible and that's enough for me. I know other people <laughs> prefer to have some sort of, oh, if I do good in this life, then there's a life where, you know, an afterlife where things are amazing. But in the absence of, well, I do charitable goods, I do charitable works and I give money to this country and this, this person in a low-income country um, so I can then get into, the, get into the big shop, get my ticket to the VIP after party and everything's going to be okay. In the absence of that, because uh, it's a bit of a slightly selfish reason. You know, I'm giving to charity <laughs> yes. because do, good deeds will you know, earn my ticket to the after show. I'll, I'll go in to heaven afterwards, that, yes. Yeah, yeah. In the absence of that, what 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 good comes to uh, someone in my position? What good comes to me from giving my money to a person in another country? How do I personally, uh, you know, is there an equivalent? <laughs> How do I personally gain from that? There is an equivalent in in this life, and you know, like you, I I don't believe that there is any other life for us. Um, but the equivalent is leading a a more meaningful and more fulfilling life for yourself. And, you know, I've been working in this area as well from roughly the same time when I stopped eating animals. Uh, so back in the 1970s, I've been working to help organizations helping people in extreme poverty. And over the last uh, 10 years or so with the organization, The Life You Can Save, which recommends the most effective charities for people to donate to. So I've had a lot of contact with people who've come out and donated to these organizations um, and the common theme that I get for them is that they're really more satisfied with their lives, that it's given meaning to their lives that they didn't have. And so particularly when people are reasonably successful uh, financially and then they start wondering, well, what should I do with this money, you know, yes, I can buy a bigger house or a fancier car, or I can wear one of those expensive mechanical watches that don't tell the time any better than the uh, little, you know, cheap electronic watches. Um, but, you know, really, what's the point of that? Um, and then when they start realizing that they can make a difference to so many other people, uh, that they can, they can really use that for some important purpose. So many people feel satisfied with that and because um, the organization is called The Life You Can Save and uh, you know, people have said to me, well, the first life I saved is, is my own because not that I was going to die, but um, I've given meaning and purpose to my life and I'm more satisfied with what I'm doing and feel good about it in a way where previously I wasn't really 
getting that satisfaction out of life. Do you think there's an evolutionary reason that we get this sense of well-being from helping other people? I'm sure it has a basis in the fact that we're social animals. Uh, humans have lived as in social groups since before we were humans, as, as our close relatives, the, the great apes are. Um, generally, well, certainly chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas are, are social animals, less so orangutans. Um, but uh, so that's part of it, I think, that we have that sense of being with others and helping others. You know, lots of lots of observations of people in those among social mammals helping others. But there's more to it than that. And the other factor is our ability to reason and to think of ourselves as similar to others and to think of others as having needs like us and making a difference. So I think that's why, you know, we don't just help those in our immediate group um, in the way that other social mammals typically do. You know, there's some, you, there are some cases of social mammals helping others outside the group too. You know, famous cases, for instance, of, of dolphins helping somebody who's in danger of drowning and sort of pushing them to the surface like they might one of their own. So, so that can certainly happen. But I think, I think in our case, it's important that we are capable of seeing others as similar to ourselves and experiencing their needs and thinking that, well, if it matters to me, it matters to them. It's a kind of a, a golden rule sort of thing, you know, putting yourself in the place of others and saying, I, I shouldn't be doing what I wouldn't want others to do to me. So that's part of it. Now, of course, our capacity to reason is also something that we have thanks to evolution. It, it helped us to survive instead of being able to run extremely fast or having very sharp teeth or claws or something. Uh, our great evolutionary advantage is the ability to think think, solve problems, and survive that way. So yes, we have this ability to reason from evolution, but it's the combination of that ability to reason, putting ourselves in the position of others, and being able to empathize with those others that leads us to have the capacity for uh, the broader ethical reach, for the expanding circle of moral concern that goes to all of, all of those beings capable of suffering. While we're here, well, because what you just spoke about, I'm pretty sure most people would have been able to follow along to like, yes, this makes sense to me. Like as a human, I am just one of many humans. And if I help and I can try to see that humans that even I don't know experience pain and loss and fear and suffering the similar as me. So if I can help them, I can help myself and together we can all be better. As humans, though, we think of others and, you know, think that they have the same rights that, that I want, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that kind of start, that, there's an edge of that. It ends at humans. Beyond that, when it comes to river systems, the air, uh, the oceans, fish, you know, uh, animals, do you think we need to start expanding that circle to consider ourselves not just as humans and then everything else, but it's, we are a part? All of this can only happen if everything happens? I certainly think we need to expand beyond humans to other beings capable of suffering. And that means um, at least most non-human animals, you could say you know, certainly verte all vertebrates, I think, are capable of suffering. But some invertebrates are as well. Uh, 
people have seen the Octopus My Teacher movie, um, you know, you know that uh, an octopus is an intelligent being capable of suffering. And uh, so that's a, a mollusk that's capable of suffering. Um, in Britain, they're adding, as well as adding uh, uh, octopus and squid, the cephalopods, they're also adding um, what are called decapod crustaceans. That means uh, lobsters and crabs in particular um, as capable of suffering. So the, in, the, there's legislation in the British Parliament now, and there's a couple of other countries that have already done that. So um, there are invertebrates capable of suffering as well. But I'm not saying that all non-human uh, animals, that all insects or uh, oysters, simpler mollusks like oysters, I'm, I'm not saying that they're capable of suffering. But, but so for me, that's the important question. Is there sentience? Is there capacity for suffer? To suffer? When you talk about ecosystems and rivers and so on, they're tremendously important for the future of uh, our own future and for that of non-human animals capable of suffering as well. I'm not. Uh, I'm not somebody who says that an ecosystem is itself a kind of conscious entity or anything of that sort. So uh, I think. I'd be prepared to say that the the value and importance of the ecosystem or the river is for those sentient beings who depend on them rather than intrinsically. And uh, that's why nature is important. That's why it's you know, catastrophic that we're destroying forests and uh, you know, climate change is ruining the Great Barrier Reef, for example. Uh, those sorts of things are tragedies, but they're tragedies for the sentient beings who live there and appreciate them and want them uh, not so much for uh, the coral or the trees themselves. Yeah, there's... <laughs> They're very pretty to go and snorkel on, but you've got to remember that the manta rays like to live there. The manta rays <laughs> like to live just as much as anybody else. And if you've ever been scuba diving and seen a manta ray swim past you, like I challenge you to find something more majestic. It is a, it's a, a stunning, a, a stunning creature to witness. Stunning. And if you don't, if you don't feel touched by the just the pure, astonishing, incredible incredulity that that creature even exists in that moment, then you and I need to sit down and have a chat. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. I haven't, uh, I haven't scuba dived with a manta ray. Um, oh, I have, uh, let's go. You learn how to surf at 50, mate. Let's scuba. Let's go. Uh, I wouldn't mind, but um, you know, I have I have surfed with dolphins. That was pretty amazing too. Watch 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 a dolphin surfing a wave and jumping out of the wave and obviously enjoying it. Um, that's terrific too. That. Yeah, that is that that is that's truly truly something. You were a um, you were in the the inception of the uh, Australian Greens Party here in Australia. What 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 do you remember about that time? Uh, yeah, that was very exciting. I was a founding member of the Victorian Greens when the Greens were sort of start, starting to form as a national political party rather than some different state organisations. Uh, you know, I was a great admirer of Bob Brown and the struggle um, that he had had, um, you know, the campaign to save the Franklin and uh, what he was doing in general. He was clearly a, a forerunner and a pioneer and a far-sighted person, still is, of course, who, who can see what's happening. Uh, and I wanted to contribute to that and to support that. Um, it wasn't so much that I was hopeful that the Greens would achieve government, but rather that they would drive other political parties, particularly the Australian Labor Party I was thinking of, to occupy more of that ground, that if they saw a, a smaller party taking votes from them, they would 
realize that if they did not have strong environmental policies, um, then they were going to lose seats to them, uh, which obviously has happened to some extent, but uh, it would be good if it happened to a much greater extent. Sometimes, and it's been obviously talked about a lot during the time that Trump was in power, that the, the success of the, the right it essentially has sometimes been attributed to it's it's very easy for the right to organize you know it's like this is good this is bad you with us or against us let's go and left can have a problem because they start to fracture quite quickly uh, did you experience any of that at all uh, the Greens were not uh, in danger of fracturing when I was active there. Um, it was quite difficult to, to reach decisions because, at, at least at that time, the Greens tried to reach decisions by consensus. Uh, they didn't want to vote and have majority decisions prevail. And that's wonderful, but it's idealistic. And uh, sometimes if you're going to achieve consensus, you have you spend a very long time talking about and discussing issues. And in the end, perhaps the consensus is achieved because some people can just stay there and keep talking all night and other people have to get up and go home and, you know, maybe look after their children or whatever it might be. So, um, it's, it's not ideal. And uh, yes, it is the case that um, there may be splits. You know, in one way, we're politically fortunate in Australia in that we have uh, preferential voting uh, for the lower house and proportional representation for the for the Senate. And so the splits are, are less catastrophic than they are in the United States, where, you know, in 2000, I was already in the United States teaching at Princeton in 2000, when uh, Al Gore, um, who had a strong concern for climate was against uh, George W. Bush. And essentially that came down to w whether Florida would end up um, tipping its votes to Gore or Bush. And Ralph Nader was running in Florida for the Greens. And I think if I remember rightly, he got something like 80,000 votes and um, Bush won the election by 500 votes. So, you know, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that if there had been pre preferential voting, let's say at least 60,000 of those 80,000 votes that went for NATO would have would have gone to Gore and he would have won Florida quite comfortably and would have been president and who knows how different the future of the world would have been then, right? I mean, not not just better for climate change, but um, maybe he wouldn't have attacked uh, Iraq um, yeah. in the way that Bush yeah. did and all of the catastrophic consequences <laughs> yeah. that flowed from that. I can only imagine. There's a story, I've told this on this show before, but there's a mate of mine, his father's in his 80s, and his father met his mother at a Liberal Party dance in the 60s. Uh, they were young liberals at university and they shared similar uh, morals and similar you know, ideas about what the world should look like. And he's now in his 80s and he votes green. And my mate asked him and said, you know, what happened? And he said, no, 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 I never changed. How I feel about the world never changed. Just who, was, who had the policies that aligned with how I feel about the world changed? And now the Greens are the people, uh, which kind of blows my mind that the Liberal Party in the 70s and 80s had policies that could have been Greens policies. 
Well, you know, if if you're conservative in the full sense, I guess you want to conserve some of the good things about the world um, and not and not just allow business to to take them over and uh, and get its way. So yeah, policies have changed. Um, you know, again, and that's certainly also true in the United States, where the Republicans have just moved so crazily far to the right um, uh, with with Trump and with Trump supporters and uh, the sort of more liberal Republicans who used to be around, um, you know, people like Nelson Rockefeller, for example, uh, uh, who had fairly liberal policies. Even Richard Nixon, you know, who, who I was totally opposed to because of support for the war in Vietnam. But, you know, even he wanted to bring in a sort of universal healthcare system in the United States, which they still don't have. Um, and, you know, now the Republicans are very far from that. Uh, so, yeah. The right has often moved further to the right, and uh, sometimes, sometimes you're right. it could be that you haven't changed, but the parties have changed. As we go towards this election, I'd like to remind people that as in, as Australians, our governments have sometimes done really incredible and inspiring things. In your view, what are like what are the high watermarks as far as ethics go uh, that our government has done that you go that? It makes me proud. I'm proud that we did that as a country. Well, perhaps the biggest change for me was uh, when Gough Whitlam's government was elected um, and, you know, more or less immediately it um, put, it ended conscription um, and there were you know, draft resistors on the run who were criminals before the government was elected, who ceased to be criminals. Um, uh, it ended conscription and then it very rapidly pulled out of the Vietnam War um, and so they were dramatic changes that governments had made. Um, but there are certainly you know, other important things that you achieve through politics. Um, I think uh, the whole Keating government did uh, a lot of good things, clearly. Uh, you know, And actually, going back to Whitlam too, the first land rights for Indigenous people were something that, uh, that Whitlam, um, the Whitlam government did. Um, and... Um, I think Keating still felt strongly about Indigenous people and uh, made that wonderful Redfern speech. Um, I'd say that the role that, um, under the same, again, the whole Keating government, the role that Gareth Evans played, uh, I must admit he's a personal friend of mine, I went to university with him and have known him ever since, but, but the role that he played in... Um, uh, a number of issues in um, helping to bring peace in Cambodia. Um, he was an important negotiator in uh, what happened there. And um, the Chemical and Biological Weapons Treaty, um, uh, he also played a, a really important role in. So those are, those are things that I've been really proud that our government has done. So we, we are capable of, of more than holding a lump of coal in Parliament and saying, don't be afraid of it. There's, yeah, there's we things that we can do a, that are quite inspiring. Yeah, that's right. We can be a respected nation, um, you know, obviously a, a middle-ranking yeah. nation, not a, not a power, a great power, but a middle-ranking nation that can play an important role in bringing other nations together. How do you think, as, as we're heading towards this election, how do you think we are doing as a country? Are we cynical? Are we hopeless? Are we hopeful? What do you think? <laughs> so it's it's hard for me to really estimate that. I think th there are certainly a lot of people who are who are very hopeful and who are moving in the right direction. Um, I think the last election was very disappointing. Uh, we were hopeful of getting a better government that would be more concerned about climate change and uh, about a range of other policies as well. Uh, we didn't get it. 
I don't know quite where we're going to be going this time. Uh, because obviously you you know you mix with people who tend to share your views and have the same sort of political yeah, right, views yeah. and are, you know are hoping for um, for Labor to get back in with with green support perhaps to um, keep them environmentally honest. Uh, that's what I would like to see. Uh, but uh, I have to admit that Morrison is is convincing uh, a number of people. That, you know he is I think trying to have that impact on people. He's um, saying things that may sound good but um, you know I would say are not really trustworthy in terms of uh, where the government is going so do people are people taken by in, taken in by that or are they seeing through it um, I'm, I'm not enough of an expert to answer that he's certainly very good at his job oh, absolutely he's very very good at his job of getting and, and keeping and keeping power the, the things that you've been talking about your whole you know kind of pu public facing career um, animal rights and environmental protection and, and extreme poverty these things at least in, in in our part of the world yes they're important to think about it but they never threatened my home my way of life they never they never threatened my actual life Peter how close are we going to have to get till it's yeah, I mean, sure, that we lost people. Many people died in these recent floods. How close are we going to have to get to, no, you're actually at risk of death if you don't change now? <laughs> like, where where do we as humans generally wait until we until we hit go on the change? I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that in Australia we're not going to get to that point uh, in the foreseeable future that, uh, I mean, as you say, it will happen for some people. Undoubtedly, it will happen through floods. It will happen through droughts. Um, but I'm hoping we won't get to that sense of our own lives really being in peril, probably the most obvious way that we would get there would be in through nuclear war in, in the near future. And of course, um, Putin has been putting his, his nuclear weapons on a higher level of alert and uh, saying that he would use them, um, threatening that. I mean, that's, that's a horrendous situation. And Yet I also do think that he has to be stopped. I think if Putin is able to succeed in turning Ukraine into a, a puppet state, uh, then that won't be the last thing that he tries to do. He will turn his attention to other states with uh, Russian minorities, maybe the, the Baltic states like Latvia and Estonia and their NATO uh, parts of NATO. So uh, the threat of war is definitely there again in a way that it wasn't just uh, a couple of months ago, um, and that's somewhat scary. And uh, again, although we would not be the most immediately affected, that uh, would probably be in Europe. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the movie On the Beach, um, you know, based on the, on the novel in which um, Melbourne was the last major city on Earth to uh, still be around as the nuclear cloud and the radiation circled the planet. So let's just hope it, it, won't, it won't get to that point. Um, but that would seem to me the, 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 the most immediate threat. Um, but as I say, other, other countries are in greater need, and I do think that that's, given that we're an affluent country, that's where we should be focusing. A moment away from Peter Singer to remind you that we're doing live shows. Yes, we are. We're doing a live on stage fake news show. All right. The jobs that I do on television, they're often jobs where 
you know, I have to be sometimes quite serious or I've just got to do the business. I'm not. Occasionally, I can try to, you know, throw a bit of a gag in there, but that's not the job. The job isn't to be funny in, the, in those shows. Other people do that job better than me on the telly. However, the comedy space is something that I enjoy very much and I do it with other people on other projects. And so I am I was like, I'd, I'd like to do more of that. And so I've created this way to go into that space in a way that you get to see it more. So we're doing a live show. It's uh, called NTN NNN, Nighttime News Network, National Nightly News. It's me and the NTN NNN news team. It's a show's called Real Stories, Fake News, Live on Stage. It's a ton of fun. We're at the Factory Theatre from January 27. I think we've got a couple of weeks booked there. 7 o'clock shows, only 20 bucks, heaps of fun. Come and get around it. Come and have a laugh. It's the news of the day. You can come every week and like if you avoid the news all week, you can just come and you'll be up to date. All right. We really do talk about the actual news. It's a satirical news show. It's so much fun to do. It's great. I can't wait to come and do live shows again and see everybody. It's going to be awesome. So yeah, tickets are in the show notes. Uh, Just click on like only 20 bucks. So you'll still have money left over to go to dinner or something like that. Thanks heaps for being uh, interested and even this podcast and if you are interested in this podcast i think you'd be quite interested in these shows because it's this but live and a heap of fun we're back with peter singer in just a moment there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You have been. Uh, married for a very long time. You've married uh, 50 years. What what would your wife say about what it's like to be married to a philosopher when it comes time to, I don't know, Peter, have you taken the bins out? Ah, I took the bins out last night, yes. <laughs> I don't think that changes very much. Um, I don't <laughs> think I get I, – I don't get any special privileges as a philosopher that, you know, somehow – No, I'm not saying that you uh, – not like when it comes to like getting any, any, any altercations with you. Like I think surely oh. you have tips as a married couple. Oh, yeah, absolutely, we have tips, but they they tend not to be philosophical ones, you know. That's one of the great things that I think that our uh, values – perhaps evolved, you know, look, we we were both starting from the same political side of the spectrum, undoubtedly, um, when we got together. Uh, But in terms of uh, the things that we've been talking about, like um, not eating animals, like uh, contributing uh, a significant part of our income to help people in extreme poverty, to give to the most effective charities we can find, um, those are things that happened after we got together. But we agreed on them and it was much easier for me to do these things because um, Renata, my wife, was supportive of those ideas and, you know, once we thought about them, thought that they were good things to do. So we did it together uh, and, and that was a 
her great support. So, you know, fortunately, we've we've uh, evolved together, and we mostly see eye to eye on those sorts of things. Uh, not everything, but um, the, the, in terms of the the most important things about how we how we live, may, maybe she's kept me a little bit more down to earth. <laughs> what about you, Peter? How you, obviously you think about some pretty heavy stuff all day long, every day. You have intense conversations. Uh, I dare, I dare say, there's very few conversations that you have in your waking hours that are not intense. How do you recover? How do you recharge? How do you give your spe- your brain space to consider? I've been thinking this this whole time. Is it still the right thing? All right. So. Um yeah, I do think over things. That takes time generally and that comes through discussions with other people or with other philosophers. That leads me to change my views on those issues. But in terms of you know recovering, I, it's not that I'm thinking about philosophical questions all the time. I do think it's really important to have breaks. To you know, That's one of the things that I, I love about nature and, that, again, that my wife and I share. We, we both enjoy being out in nature. Uh, hiking is probably the major form of, of recreation that we do together. We go for walks. We get into nature. We relax. We don't discuss philosophy or big things usually as, as we're hiking. And uh, then... The other things are being with family. As you said, I have children and grandchildren. Uh, Fortunately, they're all in Melbourne, so that's terrific. We can stay close, see a lot of them, um, and do things together where, again, we're we're really just living ordinary family lives. Sometimes I'll talk to my grandchildren about some philosophical issues, just talking about what's going on in Ukraine with them uh, recently, even a little bit with the youngest of them, who's eight. But... uh, but not all the time, no. A lot of it is just the normal things that any parents and grandparents do. But it's, it's, it's nice to hear that you've, you've found this, this thing that I'm sure that if the days or weeks have, have gone by when you haven't been able to go for a hike or you haven't been able to see your family, that your, your, your work suffers, surely. Uh, it suffers. There's two things going on. It means that I have more time to get into it and... Um, without interruptions so that's a good thing yeah. some of the things you know if I'm, if I'm writing yeah. something seriously you don't want to be interrupted all the time because your your train yeah. of thought gets interrupted and you, you don't go on um but you're missing others um you're, you're missing those opportunities and uh eventually without without the family and without the the recreation together You'll, you'll get stale, I think, and, you, and you'll burn out. That's the other thing. You know, I've seen, again, in, in movements, the animal movement and in people working very hard for charity, I've seen people who start up fully fired up, lots of enthusiasm. They really want to change things, particularly in the animal movement. They're horrified by factory farming. We've got to stop factory farming. So they go into the movement full time. They don't have the family connections or the, or the occasions to rest and, and re- recuperate. And after a year or two, they're burned out, um, and they're not still going. So you know, it's 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 a loss. It's a pity. They would have done more good if they'd been somewhat less intense, and they would have been maybe working there for decades rather than for just a couple of years. When faced with something as just colossal, uh, I've heard it described as a hyper object, uh, the climate change. It's 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 a hundred million drastically difficult problems with a billion separate solutions. Like how can you possibly contemplate sorting that out? Like it's so overwhelming, we can freeze. How can we possibly move from a place of terror and fear to a place of action when it's just like mathematically impossible for our actions to feel like they're having any impact at all? 
I think you have to do what is going to have some sort of impact, even if a very small one, and feel that you're playing a part in that. So, again, when it comes to global poverty, people often say, well, you know, whatever I could do would be a drop in the ocean. You know, I can't, you know, there's currently the World Bank says there's something between seven and 800 million people in extreme poverty. What can I do about that? Even Bill Gates can't solve that problem or, you know, I guess uh, Jeff Bezos or uh, Elon Musk can't solve that problem. But we shouldn't think of it just like that. We should think about what we can do that is positive and making a difference. And, you know, the average middle class or above Australian can certainly save the lives of people in low-income countries by helping the most effective charities to protect them against malaria or to get them started in uh, some sort of enterprise where they can lift themselves out of poverty. So, you know, that's why I started uh, The Life You Can Save, the organization to help people find those effective charities where they can really make a difference. And uh, I think it's a mistake to think if I can't solve the problem alone, you know, can't can't solve the entire problem. It's not worth doing anything. Um, that's that's a big problem that people think about that way, and it's a psychological barrier. But really, what we need to be doing is to do what we can to move things in the right direction, and of course, to encourage others to do that. Set an example that they will follow, and then more people will do that, um, and then together we can make that difference. Peter, I'm I'm so thrilled that you're uh, going to do this uh, speaking tour. Not just because I, you know, it's nice to sit in a room full of people again after all these years of being stuck in my house. With, I love my family. Don't get me wrong, uh, but it's <laughs> it'd be nice. But also that you'll be speaking with one of my favorite people, Josh Zepps, who is an incredible human being and a brilliant thinker and blindingly smart and fast. And I'm just so excited to hear what you guys have to talk about. It's yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking to Josh and to having those those conversations in Sydney and Brisbane um, and in Melbourne where I'm speaking with Libby Gore, who's um, also, I think, a great oh, she's person. Fabulous. She's terrific, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to these events in, in those three cities and uh, having those conversations. And I hope lots of people will come along as we can all get together. Yeah. Uh, definitely. And um, once New Zealand opens up a bit more, I'm planning to do it there too. I was all, 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 originally arranged to go to Auckland as well, but um, it's not possible mm. now, but hopefully it will be again later. I had such a crush on Libby Gore when I was a kid. Oh, man. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I can't even tell you. I've told her. I've let her know. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Uh, Peter, it's been a complete, uh, just an absolute dream to speak to you today, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Josh. Great to talk to you. Uh, that was Peter Singer. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to get your tickets for the uh, live shows that are coming up in January. If these shows go well, we're going to get all the way to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Hopefully, we have to show that these shows go well. So do your Melbourne brothers and sisters service and show the good people who book the MICF that we are worthy of a venue. And um, get around it because a bunch of Melbourne people, they like the show as well. And they want us to get to tour down there, but we can only do it if we get a, get a room. So please get around these shows. The Factory Theatre in Marrickville from January 27. Tickets are in the show notes. Thanks to the people that helped me make the show today. Bruce Steele, my producer, Toe Hoder on the music, Andy Marr on audio and video post-production, and Rachel Barrett, uh, my executive producer. Thanks heaps for listening. I'll see you Wednesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 